hosted by Jason Bryan and providing the latest insights on telecoms trends from around the world. This is Rocco Radio. Welcome to Well Connected. On this week's show, I speak with my father, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of years ago. My father is obviously not from the telecoms industry. He has been, however, an entrepreneur for over 30 years. And in this podcast, he talks about his journey through a long career and how important it was to have that career in terms of having his own business. It's a quite different podcast to what you'll normally have from Rocco. But I wanted to share with you some of the insights which have always driven me and made me very passionate about starting a business and have led inevitably to the launch of Rocco eight years ago. So with no further ado, I give you my father, Mr. Michael Bryan. Be prepared. You've got to be dedicated in what you do. This is not a nine-to-five job, but it's like your own business. Stay focused. If you're not familiar, before you open your mouth, get all your information together. Because if you've got to debate something, you must know the side that you've got to debate. So I'm here with the Vice Chair of Environment and Regeneration Committee of the East Riding of Yorkshire, which is a, a local government role. His name is Michael Bryan. It's a real pleasure to interview my dad on his life and career because he's had a long history of entrepreneurship. He's also had roles in being the mayor of the town where I was raised. Welcome, Dad, to this podcast. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you doing this. If you understand, it's difficult for me to reflect. And I would start from maybe, I guess, maybe 40 years ago. When you were a boy, what, what were your aspirations? What did you want to do? I wanted to, to run my own business. Not knowing which type of business I wanted to run. Then, later on in life, I realized that the best business I could run is something I know the most about. Let's go back. So you're a young boy. You've been raised in Hedden. Yes, born and brought up in Hedden. What, yeah. what was the what was the work environment like in Hedden at that time? I worked at a place called Airport Garage. For my first job, and I wanted to go there as an apprentice mechanic. There was a very qualified mechanic there called Bob and uh, he would teach me things but at the same time I was there to look after the petrol pumps and serve customers as they came in. After that I went on construction work and I worked on a pipeline that came, the gas pipeline that came ashore at Easington in 1966 and discovered gas in the North Sea and I got a job with the company, a big company, and I had to organise and look after the stores. And if we didn't have it in the stores, I had to arrange to go and get it locally, if it was possible. Uh, then I um, worked away out of town uh, for the same company. I worked in, in a West Riding on a pipeline job, which was from Runcorn to RCI Wilton on that sort of particular job. It's involved 
working 24, 48 hours consecutive. And after that... Actually consecutive without yes, without, without sleeping or... Without official breaks, because <laughs> we was on what they call testing. And the testing was we had to fill this pipeline full of water and then get it to a certain pressure level and then we had to monitor it. And it had to be monitored for 48 hours to test the pipeline vulnerability, basically. And so we, we did that and then, you know, I did that. Uh, the system was you would work maybe two days on the trot and have two days off. And, and this was the sort of thing when I was involved in uh, pipeline production. And then I, I sort of came back to the area and I uh, worked for a couple of more companies. I worked for a company on the South Bank. South Bank of the River Humber. Yes, South Bank of the Humber. This was one of them jobs where I had to catch a ferry in the morning. There again, I was involved in the stores of mechanical, or the tool stores, basically, on mechanical things. And basically what happened is I was employed there for about two years. What happens was it was quite a tricky thing coming from Hedden to go into Hull, to catch your ferry, to go across the River Umber. When you got to the other side, there was about half a mile to walk. Then you would get on a bus and the bus would maybe take three quarters of an hour and you would actually then get to sight. So it was a bit difficult, but it, it was something I enjoyed doing, so I continued uh, for two years w w with this mechanical company. And then after that, I got a job in, in Hull uh, at Salt End, BP. What a different change in getting to work from Salt End to a, an epic journey of going on a ferry to the South Bank. However... So you were taking a ferry every day? Every day. Every morning and evening? Yeah, sometimes we'd get stuck on the mud and I wouldn't get home on 8 o'clock on a night. <laughs> uh, which was, you know... A, a, um, a challenge. It was a bit of a challenge because um, the thing is, uh, the, the Lincoln Castle, I think, was one of the ones I remember. Uh, the boat, we got stuck in the Umber because the Umber is a very treacherous place in respect of, it says, moving sort of sandbanks. I guess two or three times we got stuck on the sandbanks coming back. It was always coming back, but never going. Anyhow, I got stuck on the sandbanks and the ship would sell out as crisps, the ship would sell out of beer, drinks, water and everything because we'd be stuck on the umber for maybe, I don't know, a couple of hours or even more, you know, until the tide came up and lifted us off. <laughs> and it was difficult, but it, it, it's okay. That was all part of life. Jobs weren't easy available, so you had to not wait for one to come on your doorstep, but go out and find one. It was a challenge, but we uh, we managed it because we had some some very comical people on the boat, as you do in this construction industry. What happened is the boat would maybe be I don't know ten foot <laughs> ten ten foot off the side of uh, of the dock, going out, and there would be somebody come running up out of breath. And people would say, come on, you can do it in two. Well, <laughs> it was ten foot out. 
and it's obviously impossible to do it in two. You mean you mean jump from jump the... jump from the river bank to the boat? Come on, you can do it in two. But there's some very very comical people. Uh, I quite enjoyed that, that that job. It was interesting because we we was we used to walk down the long pier on the south bank, and what happened was one of the guys every single night it threw is packing up over the side of the walkway. His, his lunch? Yeah. His packed lunch? His packed lunch. He'd throw up. People used to say to him, hey, I've been watching you. What do you throw away in the morning? And then you won't have to carry it to work. But I don't know, this particular guy, whether it was food he didn't like, he just used to sort of... On a night, as you're coming back, a traditional thing. If he was walking behind Barry, you'd see him throwing his bread out <laughs> overboard, um, over the, um, the, the, the walkway. But it's, uh, it's very, it was very interesting. So, uh, so what was next? What was the next job? The next you... job, I, I, um, I was employed at a company, uh, at Salt End, doing a new chemical production plant. I, uh, I was there to set up the stores because I had quite a bit of experience in this over the years. And I was employed to set up the stores, uh, tool rice stores, and try and keep a track of the tools and equipment which was owned by the company. The company provides the materials. You know, we'd have jokers come up and say, somebody's got the finger fast. Quick, give me an axle. Well, we got over all that because... You know, you never saw the axor again, so everything had to be signed for and monitored and recorded so that I had to justify every piece of equipment I give out. So it was quite sort of complex. So Sultan, for those who are not aware, is a petroleum plant, isn't BP it? Petroleum Developments is a company who is located one and a half miles away from Hedden. However, from there... I went to a place called Easington and worked for a company there which had a, a three-year contract. And I worked down there. I was doing the same thing, basically, working in the petrochemical industry, in the construction, and I was responsible for involved with two lots of stores, maintaining a level of tools which was required for them to construct the job. You know, we had to control the tools because if you didn't control them, you would lose them. And it would cost the company an awful lot of money. You know, an electric drill goes out or a specialist piece of equipment goes out and you never see it again. So you had to get someone to sign for it, make them responsible for this equipment. And you had to be very firm because a few tricksters who, who, would, who would try their utmost to get something without signing... Simple things like when they ask for for what purpose, so they could for their own steal it or capital, yeah for their own capital for their own benefit. And now you know I used to say to them, I say I've got some gloves. So I said, yeah, where's your old pair? I had them nicked. Well, okay, you can't have any gloves until you bring a pair in. Well, I need some gloves, but the thing is, you have to have control. So I said, well, okay, if you can't find any gloves, you've got them nicked. Go and get a signature from your is it. Piece of paper, get a signature from your supervisor, and we'll get it sorted out that way. 
So I was sort of dedicated to what I was doing for the company I worked for, which was, well, I was very serious about what I did because I loved the job and the job was easy. But if you try and cut corners, you create yourself problems later on. And we used to have a management meeting and they would say, right, why are we, why all of a sudden have we done this this month and yet we didn't do that while well, we're going through a different stage of the production? That is why, you know, okay, that's fine. So you had to be prepared to justify the decisions you had made. Okay, then I, a bit unusual really, I, I, I went to work for a, a company who produced portable accommodation units, uh, porter cabins. They're again looking after the stores. Same sort of thing. You're still responsible for the tools that you purchased and where they went to uh, and how they was distributed. And basically I went there for a couple of years and then the company sort of went down a little bit and they decided to reduce the staff. I think there was some competition in the area and their weekly production was reduced dramatically. So I, I was released from the company and then I had the opportunity to go and live in Canada. So what brought about emigrating to Canada? Well, I, I've got two brother-in-laws who live in Canada. My wife was very keen to go, so we went on a visit to Canada. And as we know, the grass always appears greener on the other side. So we went, and obviously, um, I mentioned about when we got married. We went to Canada, we went and tried it, we took the two, we had two children at this time, and we emigrated to Canada. Bit difficult to put all your memorable things into a, a box two foot by two foot, but okay, we took all our private possessions. And what happened is we sent them across there by boat. And after we went to Canada, we lived there, and I got a job for a company called Henschel's. Henschel's was a company who made grandfather clocks. And I got a job there, and it was, it was, it was a very good job making grandfather clocks, but nothing I had really a lot of experience in. So what I did was picked up, looked very closely, learned a lot about the production side of things, how dedicated you had to be to produce the end products, which was the grandfather clock. Looking at the timber that came into the place and looking at the finished products was just quite unbelievable, really. And they had a lot of very clever craftsmen there. And I picked up with a, a guy, and uh, he taught me quite a lot. A guy called Dushon. And Dushon, he taught me a lot. And then I worked there, and I was quite enjoying it there. But like anything else, when you've got a growing family, you have the opportunity to earn more money. So... Just to, just to focus on that, you... While you were having these other jobs, you also were doing carpentry. Yeah, I, I've, I've always enjoyed woodworking projects. So you must have felt quite comfortable working with... Well, I did. ...grandfather clocks. Well, I, I did, but, but what happened was, it was, you had to be more precise, more particular, because 
once you'd seen the end products, you knew that if you didn't get your, the basics correct, the end product wouldn't look correct. And it wouldn't fit in, and it wouldn't look as well. But there were some very, very experienced, all different. I think there was about seven different nationalities there. And of course, a head and lad going into Canada, working with his company with seven different nationalities, you, you know, you just nod your head and smile and, you know, what else could you do? <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit of, you know, they don't really particularly speak English well. So communication was a bit of a problem, but I got with this, this guy, very clever guy, and he taught me an awful lot. And I, I could say that his teaching skills and his perfection was beyond belief. And when I left, you know, uh, the company to move on to another company, because I, I, I had a little bit of financial pressures and, and, and I needed to make more money because we had a growing family and the family wanted close to school and, and whatever, you know. We had a mortgage because uh, we moved over to Canada and bought a house. I needed to just get a little bit more money coming in. However, I, I left until clocks and I went to a company called Bud Automotive. Bud Automotive was a, a chassis manufacturing company who made chassis for North American cars. And it was a real production sweat house in respect of you would work three shifts, whether it be night shift, day shift or afternoons. And you'd go there and it was all production work. I worked in the press section and you was paid on the produce you produced. So you was making certain parts of a chassis. And, you know, if you didn't get going, like, you know, you'd be on like minimum wage sort of thing. And there was maybe a line of 10 presses and sometimes a machine would break down. Uh, so that would stop your production. You know, you basically got paid for what you did. And if you was down all, all night, for an example, well, you had no production, so you had very, you had a minimum wage, but you'd got no bonus. And so I'm sort of looking at this and thinking, well, you know, I'm not a real lot better off than when I worked at Entrance Clocks, you know. Uh, so I would say that the best thing was, obviously, if the machines kept going, I could make good money. And it was good money. I preferred to work on a machine on my own where there was, I was not involved in a line. I asked the foreman if I could work on a particular machine and I made lots of money, but I was not held up by anyone else in a production line. I was just on my own machine. And I brought record after record because they says, well, have you done all of them? I says, well, there's the proof of it and I could prove it to them. Anyhow, that, that was a production thing. Very, very hard work. I was there about 18 months. Very physical. However, at the time, I was a youngest guy, and, I, and I, I, was, I was fairly fit. And then there was a big layoff, and there was a slowdown in production, and so I got laid off. And I went to work for a company who made hockey sticks. This company was a bit sort of... Bit strange, really. I, I I saw the advert. I applied for the job. I went in, and I was interviewed. And I says, "Well, we want you to sort of manage the production of these." 
and these ice hockey sticks. So I went through and uh, they showed me the process of how things work, just the outline of it. And I was there to manage this small outlet. But I was there a couple of months and I realised why this vacancy was available. We had a few difficult situations because there would be a pile of wood come in and it would be to produce these hockey sticks. As soon as the wood pile went down, the people knew that they was going to be laid off. So production slowed to a snail space because obviously they knew what was going on. And I spoke to the, the owners of the company. I says, well, look, this is what's going on. You're asking me to produce something and yet these people are not stupid. They may be different nationalities, but they can see the wood pile come down. Once the wood pile goes down, everybody's laid off. And then we start up again with another wood pile a week later. You know, in the end, the, the company went into liquidation. So not knowing too much about that particular field, the, the company's background, basically they had to lay me off sort of thing. And then about a month later, they called me back and I said, I'm sorry, but I, I'm not prepared to come back on a yo-yo situation whereby you, you work, you're not working, you work. Yeah. I, I've got a family to feed, and, and, you know. And in Canada, it's a little bit different, meaning that there's not easy hand out. If you work, you get paid, you buy food. If you don't work, you don't get paid. There's lots of things which is quite different. So I was in Canada from 77 to 81, and, and then we decided to come home. After two years, we came home on a holiday, and then we went back to Canada. And I couldn't settle. That was my situation. I couldn't settle. I was very frustrated in, in, in the employment situation. And what happened was we had a, a, a talk, me and Yvonne, and basically she said if you could just get another job, but in the thick of winter, you know, you can't go knocking on doors looking for a job. You know, the snow was maybe two foot deep outside and, uh, you know, there's nobody particularly employing someone on the outside, but maybe on an internal job. So I had a, a bit of a difficulty in the continuity of employment. And it was something I wasn't particularly too excited about. I had an awful lot of experience in mechanical tools over the years. We came back over to England. Really, we didn't like it, but we'd made a decision. And I got a job with a friend of mine who owned an engineering company. And he said to me, I'll give you a job, but I can't guarantee you how long it'll be. But what I want you to do is set up a mechanical stores. I know that you'll have the experience. So I says, okay. And we set the system up so that we had to justify everything that went out of the stores. Specialist pieces of equipment had to be signed for because they might have been needed in another area or two days later, if that person didn't bring the equipment back, the specialist piece of equipment back, we knew where, who had it and where he was. So it had to be returned because some of these pieces of equipment might have cost, I don't know, £1,000 or £2,000. 
And so we had to keep a track on it. And the important thing was to the company is that we knew exactly where it was. A little bit like what you did when you worked for BP. Yeah. Uh, When I worked for a a company on the construction of the pipeline that came out of the North Sea in 1966, same thing. One of the funny things on one occasion, uh, I used to keep the toilet rolls (laughs) in the stores, and the owner come up and ask me for a toilet roll. <laughs> and I says, that's fine. Have you got the cardboard sleeve? And I am allowed to give you one. So the owner went back to the toilet, got the cardboard sleeve, gave me the cardboard sleeve. In turn, I then gave him a full toilet roll. And afterwards, I never thought about it, but afterwards I th- thought to myself, you know, that guy had the ability to sack me, but I was doing my job. I'm, I'm very, how can I say... I was conscious of everything I did. I worked there for a couple of years. And then, again, I had an opportunity to go back into construction. And I went to Easington again, working for a company. And we had three stores on the site because it was quite a big site. And when I first worked to this, went to the company, it was a matter of help yourself. And so we had to move one or two staff about because they just didn't get the system. I had a a meeting with all the store people. I explained to them what I wanted to do, that people was on my back. And if we didn't do it, they would mostly be replaced and I would eventually be replaced. So it was a, a matter of getting things sorted out. Took me a month or two, but we did get things sorted out. The site seems to run, run a lot better in respect of they wouldn't go to the store and say, well, where is this piece of special equipment? I have no idea. Well, no idea is not an answer. You know, and, and the bosses would say to me, you have a problem. I don't want to know about your problem. I want to know how you're going to fix it. I say, okay, fine, I will source it. And I did do through various processes. So I was down there for a couple of years on this construction site down at Easington. And then I was going to be made redundant. And they said to me, Mike, we've got an opportunity for you. Would you like to go to the Falkland Islands? I says, let me think about that. What other alternative is there? Well, we've got another job starting in Sellafield. Would you like to go there? I said, let me think about that one as well. What's the third thing? Well, the third thing is make you redundant. You've been here just over two years now. I would have to make you redundant. The site's finished, it's completed, everybody's happy, and we're moving on. And obviously, you know what construction's like. So I said, yeah, fine. A couple of days went by, this is right. We've got a couple of weeks to sort things out. I'll ask you the same thing. Would you like to go to the Falkland Islands uh, as a purchasing manager? We've got to repair airstrips, because the Falklands were. Uh, they would like to, would have to, various projects for what to achieve. Anyhow, I said, uh, I spoke to my wife, and I've thought about it, I really wouldn't like to go to the Falkland Islands, no. Well, what about the job at Sellafield? Well, it's a bit difficult, because... So, Sellafield's a nuclear... Nuclear place. Uh, nuclear power station. On the west coast of England, uh, northwest. And then came home, and, and my wife says, 
Well, what will that mean? That what that would mean is I'll be away for maybe two two weeks and then come home, and that really would split the family up. So I decided I wouldn't take that route, and I was made redundant, and I was out of work for maybe I don't know a couple of months, and I realised my opportunity was on the doorstep to try and start my own business. A thing which I, I'd, I'd wanted to do for many, many years. Never really had the opportunity because we had a family, growing up family, and where do you find the funds to start a, start a business? Uh, we emigrated to Canada, and I thought the opportunities would have been there for me to start my own business, but things wasn't as easy at the time. And... This opportunity came up because I got a bit of redundancy pay, I got, I got a bit of this, got a bit of that. And I started on what they call the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, where a new company starting up would get £40 a week. And I, I did that. And the guy would come down unannounced, never knowing when he was coming down. I finally did meet up with him one day and he says, I've been here this week twice and you haven't been here. I says, let me explain. I've just started off a two-light company. His two-light company needs deliveries and it needs people to deliver them items. Tools to people. Tools to, yeah. yeah. I says, my wife does what she can and we've got two children. So my wife would stand in and the guy would come and say, where is he? Well, he's out delivering, you know, starting a business. So I had a bit of a bust up with this guy because he wanted to go by the by the book. And I said, look, uh, look around these premises that I have rented. I've got more invested in these premises than you will pay me in a year. I said, in this enterprise, so uh, believe you me, I am not ducking and diving. I am working very hard. Customers are demanding me to deliver things, and I deliver them. But I guess with the government scheme, they had employed people to monitor the actual companies were using the money effectively. Yes, that is that is true. But my border contention was, you know, I can't be there because I don't know when he's coming to discuss anything moving forward. However, we started this company, uh, a small tool hire company. What was, the, what was the inspiration for the tool hire company? If you remember, the most experience I had was in stores and tool hire. Because when I was down at Easington, I looked after the three stores. Also, I was a plant manager and I was a purchasing manager. So I had a few different hats. From a, a business perspective, it was a, a kind of a new idea, wasn't it? It was a creative idea. I knew a lot, an awful lot about the tool hire side from a customer as opposed to a, a supplier. And... I knew about tools, how to work, how to fix them. Because when I worked for various companies looking after the tool stores, I had little training courses. And I thought that was very, very good. The little training courses involved routine servicing of various sort of products that we handed out to the, the, the users on site. They had to be right. And after I'd been on the training courses, a couple of other people had been on the training courses, we knew how everything works. We could explain to someone who was not familiar with it. And so training played a big part in the 
in the development of my knowledge of Tolhire, basically. However, we got the company going and uh, we was going for about a year. Very demanding. Anybody who tells me working for yourself is easy, I could argue very strongly with them. You only get out of things what you put into them. And I, when I first started the Tolhire company, I put everything I could. I started at seven in the morning and I would definitely be working well six or a night. Sometimes my tea would be brought to me. I didn't live too far away from the premises. And then a, a friend of mine wanted a little bit of joinery work doing. So I left the Tolai company, I had some tea and went to work for this other company for four hours. And I did that for, I don't know, for quite some time, actually, many weeks. Because I was conscious that the company wasn't bringing me sufficient in to service the family needs. It takes a while to establish a brand, doesn't it? To get word out on the street that there is a business that offers that, I guess. Yeah, for the first couple of years, if you're starting on your own, for the first couple of years, don't think about holidays because they don't come into the equation. The only thing I knew is that I had a gut feeling these things would work, but you had to be totally, totally dedicated to what you wanted to achieve. You know, everybody can start a business, start at nine and finish at five, and, but business is not like that. The way I understand business is that you work a lot harder, you have more responsibility, but there's certainly a lot more benefits. If you're prepared to put yourself out, to work whatever hours are needed, to be dedicated in what you know, and nothing really was a problem to me. I think that the major thing was consistency. The business had to be open at eight o'clock in the morning and close at six o'clock at night. And this is what it was. You had to be there with a smile. You may have been there from six o'clock in the morning, getting the equipment prepared, ready, available to the customer. The difficulty about Tolair is you're taking some money off a customer. His expectations is that it's coming to you to save time, to do his job. He's got a problem and yet somehow he's handing the problem over to you. Because I would say to them, what are you doing with this piece of equipment? A chainsaw, for an example. We had about 1,700 different items of equipment. And the guy came and said, oh, I want a chainsaw. I said, All right, what are you doing with a chainsaw? Well, with a chainsaw, I I'm going to chop these roots up. I said, Whew. You can't chop roots with a chainsaw. Oh, where's that? Well, the thing is, the chain goes round so quickly that within seconds you will dull the blade because you're touching soil. Soil has grit in it and it takes the edge off the, mm. uh, off, off the chain. Oh, so, I says, and I don't want you coming back to me and say this chainsaw's no good because it's blunt. I can show you now this brand new chain. And here we go. This brand new chain is available for use. When you start cutting roots with it, which involves cutting soil, it's not going to work because, oh, well, I would, I would try with an axe, you know. 
nice sharp axe and cut it out that way. So basically you were giving advice to people from your own experience as well as as, as uh, offering a product. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, I was all over the place, really. I, I joined what they call the Higher Association of Europe. It's a trade which has an association which you can speak to. As a member, you join and you pay an annual membership fee, but they give you rules and guidance to go by, which you can put on terms and conditions on the back of your higher contracts and stuff like that. I found it very, very useful. I went on an awful lot of training courses from manufacturers, from power tool companies, and I would go to the factory and they would show me how this equipment was constructed. You'd walk around the factory, you'd see how it was constructed. You'd be given a project. This machine won't work, why do you, don't you think it'll work? Usually you could identify it. A lot of it was common sense. But I went on many, many training courses in every different aspects of tools that we had in the shop. And I found that so beneficial that the training, as the company grew, I employed people and I sent some of the staff away on training courses because uh, I knew this was of great benefit. It was to me, so it would be to them. Cost was quite expensive, but okay, we needed it. We needed to make the company run smooth and to maintain the right level of quality. You need to explain to the people who come to hire these mechanical tools what the capabilities are and how we check them before they leave the premises. We had a system called a check ticket. Green ticket, on the one side it had a perforated edge. And when the equipment used to go out on hire, part of the perforated strip on the side would be would be taken off and put onto the hire contract so that there was traceability to say who had checked this piece of equipment if there was a problem. My policy, not always with all the tool hire companies, my policy was spend a little bit of time showing the customer how the equipment works and show them, you show that for various reasons. One is you was confident when it was going out it worked. So you wouldn't get a phone call from 20 miles away and saying, come and pick this machine up because it's not working. I even used to get the customers say, would you like to start it up and, and see it working? Oh no, I've had one before, it'll be all right. No, no, I've written a company policy to say that you must start that equipment up before it leaves the premises. So you're happy with it and I'm happy with it. And that's why you're signing the contract. And that's why you're leaving the deposit. As time went on, I wasn't able to get involved in all the personal hiring out of equipment and, and demonstrating how things work to the customers. What I used to do is I'd get a guy behind the counter to do this. And he went on lots and lots of training courses. Cost the company quite a lot of money, but it was all worth it. Training, training, training. The training for me paid off. Took me off the hook to the degree that I could rely on someone else to do it. And I was quite confident. I said the company expanded and I started a new place 30 miles away in Bridlington because there was no tool like company in, in Bridlington. It had a population of about 32,000 
as it was a, a tourist destination in the summer, it increased to 70,000, 80,000. And so there was lots of people who had um, holiday accommodation and they wanted to just do the little jobs and different things. And we'd analyze the situation before I made this decision. I got planning permission for this location. I was interested in buying. Once I got planning permission, we, we quickly moved into the premises and uh, it started very, very well. What were the challenges with scaling up your business then? Staff. Most of staff that was completely familiar with the company policies. You know, we had certain rules and these rules was built up over 30 years. Thin, simple things like if they had no identification, we couldn't hire the equipment out to them. If you have no deposits, we certainly weren't going to hire the equipment out to them. So there's certain rules that had to be adhered to to hire a piece of equipment. You know, uh, uh, you know, a lady came in once and says, uh, "Look, uh, I've come to pick up a chainsaw for my husband." So I would say, "I'm sorry, but until the person comes in who's using it, you will not pass the information on." This company I've been running for several years, and I've got a clean bill of health. And when you cut corners, things happen. If your husband wants a chainsaw for my company, he would have to come in himself so I could show him how it worked and see that he's confident in working it. Because you took it away, he has an accident, I'm straight away into difficulties. So over the years I was in business, 30 years basically in the tool I trade, I had to pick up very quickly on where things could possibly go wrong. So after the end of 30 years, I had a health and safety record second to none. Staff who was fully trained, who was aware of the company policies of what you can and they can't do. And I, mean, I tried to make it easy for the staff because I got a computer system that says, oh, if you want a 110 volt drill, you have the opportunity to have a transformer with it. And it went on like that. The computer system was excellent. If someone wanted to take out a scaffolding tower, you would say, how high would you like this scaffolding tower? And a guy would say, oh, it needs to be 20 foot. Well, that's fine. And you would put that in and the computer would work out all the components, making it easier for the staff to serve the customers. I was dedicated in, it's got to be right. If it isn't right, if you don't set off on the right foot, you're going to end up in problems. And we had a few difficulties, but... Then we're soon rectified. In the background of things, that I would say to the staff, if it's not right and it's not safe to use, it does not go out. There's no shortcut. You cannot shortcut anything like that. So every single time, no matter what the equipment was, I couldn't, st I used to stress every day, everything all right. And don't cut corners. Because if you start to cut corners, it creates a problem further down the line. So everything had to be fitted with the manufacturer's component parts. So during this time, you were also working in the local council, right? Yes. Can I, you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I joined um, as I got sort of staff to look after the counter and, and fitters to look after maintenance of equipment. I joined the uh, local parish council, Eden Parish Council. I realised I, I got a nice little business going here, 
but I wanted to give something back to the community that I was born and brought up in. I joined the council. Wasn't an easy situation, but it was between election years, which is four years. I had to write a letter in saying what I could do and what I couldn't do. So I wrote this in and basically I was interviewed and then I was selected to be a member of the Hedden Town Council. Hedden, quite a famous place actually. I was quite surprised that I didn't realise how, just how famous Hedden was. As a kid at school, I used to go into South Oldness School. I had no interest in history whatsoever. And then I joined the council and everything came back to me, what I'd missed about the history of Eden. So I joined the council and I was on there, well, I joined in 1989, been on 29 years on the council. It's not a job that you get paid for, it's a voluntary job. But I didn't mind that because I thought I was helping the, the, the people that helped support my business and it was a way of payback. So I wanted to give something back free to them. I was on the council for maybe three or four years and they asked me to be the chairman of the property committee, which I took and did my very best. Bearing economics was in my head regards doing things economically and not just throwing money at things. If we needed a contractor, I needed to see what he was going to charge us. And I wouldn't get one price, I would get two, three prices. Then we'd analyse the situation and allocate the task in hand to the contractor. So I, I had a little bit of experience in, in, in the business acumen of things and I just wanted to portray that standard over to the council, which I, I did. And I was on the council for about 10 years. I'd done all the roles, the property chairman, finance and general purposes chairman, and I did all these roles for the council. And I was asked if I would like to be the mayor. And I just couldn't quite believe this. Took me back, really, I suppose. Uh, quite a surprise, because as a kid, being brought up in Hedden, I think I was maybe about five at the time, my mum says to me, Michael, go outside, because the town hall is getting a new mayor and they're throwing money out. So I went out to the town hall. Outside the town hall, sure enough, the mayor was throwing money out. What, what, what kind of money was he throwing? Pennies. And this was in celebration of the mayor becoming elected. And this was a tradition that's gone on for many, many years. Anyhow, so I was going back to my beginnings of being five and seeing the mayor throw the money out. Never thinking that one day I would be the mayor and throwing the money out. And when I was asked in 1999, I'd been on the council about 10 years, I'd done my apprenticeship and I was asked to be the mayor and I related back to, you know, when I was five and I would go out and collect the pennies and this sort of thing. And we'd go to the sweet shop opposite. Me and this friend of mine, what happened was, you know, if you got three pence, you could buy a bar of McGowan's toffee, the one with a cow on the front. And if you was really looking, you got more than that. You could buy half a stick of Spanish. Spanish is licorice. Licorice, yeah. Half a stick of licorice. Well, I don't know, about five, four or five inches long. And, and that was our treat. Going back, yes, I was elected to be the mayor. And what a, an honour it was. 
there's so many complex rules and regulations to conform to. And after all, when you think about it, as a councillor, any money that's spent comes from the residents. So you've got to spend that money very, very carefully and be able to justify any challenges you may have about spending that money. So I basically was very careful how I spent the money and I could justify it. I could speak to anyone in the town and say, look, population now is about 8,000. We had to do this because of that and because of this. There's more work at council, there's more work that goes on the back, on in the background, getting all your information together. And I've spent many, many hours uh, considering different projects. Is it worth it? Can we afford it? How do I justify this to the local residents? So there's a lot of work goes on in the background. So quite a big role to be the mayor of the town. You were mayor on two occasions, that's yeah. right, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. I, the first time I was a mayor, a bit of a learning curve because... There was no training for this, but I had been a deputy a couple of times and I knew roughly what to do, but the role of the mayor, you are the senior councillor in, in the town and there would be lots of problems that would come forward which you were expected to solve. And some of them would make me scrap my head and I would say, well, okay, let me go into it. With any story, I think... There's three situations to each story. Your side, their side, and the truth. And the truth is what I had to get to. And I would analyse it. And if I'm not happy, I would say, I'm sorry, I've not got you an answer yet because I'm still analysing a situation as to how best to go forward with your concern. Running a business and being a counsellor was very complex because you mustn't join the two together. You had to have a hat for each job you did. Okay, I've got my two-layer hat on now. I'll take that off. I'll put my council hat on now. And although I run a local business, I will still have people coming in to my business who demanded to see me. Straight away, I could have been upstairs with a bank manager, but they weren't concerned about that. They wanted to see me straight away to get this problem sorted out. Well, this was very difficult at times. Demanding. Very, very demanding at times. Because how do you switch your head off from being with a bank manager, go downstairs and speak to somebody who's riding a bike on the path? You know? Yeah, two <laughs> it, different hats. Yeah, it's very, sometimes a bit complex to change. Second time I was a mayor, this was in the year 2008. I was selected to be the mayor for the same time. And basically what happened was, I looked at the job a lot different. I had booked my time out for holidays, and at my own expense, I met the mayor of Luca in Italy, I met the mayor of Waterloo in Canada, and I went to Jersey, and I met a very nice person, Constable Dan Murphy. What an inspiring person he was. Not knowing that later on I would be joining the East Riding of Yorkshire Council, which was somewhat... Similar, I was invited to the viewing area of the council. It was a great honour to go and watch just how government works. Daniel Murphy was an inspiration to me because he wasn't sat in the background saying nothing. He would voice his opinion and was a good representation for his area. I, I was very impressed by meeting him. I was just a minor 
a minor in local government at that point before I joined East Riding, but it certainly gave me inspiration that if I wanted to do anything for my local community, I had to be knocking on the right door. Dan Murphy showed me that. Apart from that being very memorable and very interesting, I went and I had a Jersey crab. <laughs> That's as memory has stayed with me. I got a, a, a crab on a plate which it was so big I didn't know whether it was going to eat me or I was going to eat it. It was just gigantic. Very, very enjoyable. Every time somebody mentions Jersey, I think of Dan Murphy and then I also think of this giant crab I had. <laughs> but moving on, yes, I had in my year of office as Mayor of Hedden in 2008 and I gave various plaques out. Hedden would give a, a presentation of a plaque to the, the various people I met. The object was is to promote the town I represent and I did that in every single way I thought possible. We had silver shows. The first year, first time I was in, I think I had about three. The second year, I had ten. And I put it to the council, look, I would like to make a video or CD of this because in the near future, if no one's available to present the silver, there was Dr. John Markham and Dr. Martin Craven, both very qualified historians who run the local museum as well. And I asked the council if I could make a video and I would pay for it. The council says, yes, you can make a video, but we will pay for it. I says, it's for the future in case we don't, you know, don't have anyone to present it. So they says, you can make one, but you've got a limit of 500 pound. So as well as presenting the 10 silver shows, we made a video of it. And there has been several occasions to show the residents or the invited guests of what we are and what we have achieved. When I was a mayor in 2008, we celebrated a charter in that year. Not the oldest one, but it was one that was given to us by, it was King John. And it was quite a celebration. And we had a meal, but it was in the historic sense of how the meal would be presented in the year of King John. And it was business of the above the salts, below the salts, and, and this sort of thing. It's very, very complex. The entrance fee was quite complex because you had to pay two sheep and five groats, or five groats and two sheep. And it was quite a thing because all the councillors got dressed up and all the invited guests got dressed up in the the era that um, it was of King John. We tried to borrow a couple of sheep, uh, and so we ended up just taking a picture of two sheep in a field, and we borrowed a, a two-groat piece or a five-groat piece from the Museum Society, so that that's what, what was the original sort of thing. And it was played up, and all the people took... The, the situation very, very seriously. An awful lot of work uh, in the background from my council colleagues who helped me to produce this, this wonderful evening, a fundraising thing for the Mayor's Charity.
and at the end of the year, the mayor would collect all the money together and he would give it to different charities. I think I'd give some of mine to the cadets, the brownies, the cubs, the scouts. People always, they're basically, how can I best describe it? The people always, part of the fabric of the town, yeah. basically. Fabric of the town meaning that, you know, they come out on all the parades and they represent Hedden in their own sort of various ways when they're talking to other people or uh, other competitions against each other in the area. What would you say you learned from being the mayor of the town? It was difficult to manage your family life, to manage your family life and the business life. It was very difficult to manage both. To, to find a balance between the two. Absolutely. Because where do you go? I mean, uh, there's nobody... The best thing, I, I think, in my business experience and my council life was I always had somebody I could rely on. One person, and as I've mentioned in the past, mm. happened to be my best friend, also my wife. And we would talk over difficult things without my best friend in the background playing a major role in bringing up the children while I was concentrating on wanting to achieve my life's ambition of, of starting a business and being a counsellor. Because whatever I do, I've got to do it 100% or not do it at all. If I'm involved in anything, I, I've got to give it 100%. And I think the continuity of giving it 100% sometimes wears a little bit thin in your private life. Yeah. But, but you know, uh, I can't change who I am, um, but I can make adjustments to certain things, but I'm dedicated to my wife, uh, my best friend, who has helped me achieve what I wanted to achieve over the years. Anyhow, going back to the council, Yvonne was quite surprised when, when, when I said, look, you know, I've been asked to be the mayor, and you would have to be the mayor. Yes. She says... Oh, can't you get somebody else? So I says, no. I says, no, you've got to do it because you've helped me to achieve it. So she says, well, what's it involved? So I had to convince my wife, Yvonne, exactly what was involved in being the mayoress. This is quite a private person. She's a very private person. And basically, after a couple of occasions... She quite liked it. And being the mayor, you have a, a mayoral function, meaning a dinner, and you invite and anybody you want. So usually the mayor invite the family and their relatives. So we had relatives over from Canada uh, who visited, uh, and our children, and friends I was brought up with. Friends I used to be in that money scramble with almost 60-odd years ago. We had various slots to speak. I would speak as a mayor, then the retiring mayor would speak, and there'd be various sorts of speakers for the church and various sorts of topics. So let's go back to your business. What's the main thing you take away from that experience of being an entrepreneur for 30 years? I think you've got to be true to your customers, and I mean true. And if you're out there, you have got something like you out there. You've got to make sure that the person 
who is fulfilling your shoes for a day or two has got the same attitude. The customer is king. He pays your wages, he pays all your running costs of your business. And without the customers, you do not have a business. I know in the modern situation now, it's uneconomical to have somebody at the end of a phone. So what happens is, it's press button one, press button two, press button three, press button four, uh, and trying to ring, call uh, a, a service industry, gas, electricity or whatever, to uh, air your complaint is, is very, very difficult. Then when you get through to these various companies, where you've pressed all these buttons to get through, and you speak to someone, really, to be honest, sometimes the customer service is very, very poor. And you think, well, I've pressed all these buttons, I spoke to someone for 20 minutes, and I look and I think, well, I'm no better off now than I was when I first made the phone call. So I would say that a small business, big business, you must have training. Training is, as far as I'm concerned, training is the king. As one person, I can't do everything. But what I can do is train my staff to follow my mold of how I do things. And if they don't, well, I'll, I'll bring it to their attention very quickly. Because I had an open door policy. If you're not satisfied with the service, please let me know about it. And I had a couple of calls, contacts, where people weren't satisfied with the service. And I listened to their side of the story. And I felt that one of my staff had let me down on one occasion. And I had to explain to him, you're not following the company rules. If you do that, all our 30 years of experience, the job is easy to do. But if you don't follow them simple rules, you're a representative of the company, whether you're a driver, delivering equipment, or whether you're, you're on the counter serving a customer. Things have got to be done to protect the company and to protect the customer. So hmm. bearing that in mind, it's easy once you know the system. And if you follow the system, it is almost foolproof and you get no ongoing problems. Try to shortcut the system without the training and the advice and the experience we've had and you fall down the hole. Employed an awful lot of people at one time, we had about 15 I think, and we had a little induction to say, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you're not capable of doing. I I've got to get the right person for the job. At the interview, you appear to be good. And you appear to be interested. If you're not interested in the job, there's no point in continuing. What advice would you give to somebody who is wanting to start their own business today? Be prepared. You've got to be dedicated to what, in what you do. There's no, this is not a nine-to-five job, but starting your own business. Stay focused, dedication. If you're not familiar, before you open your mouth, get all your information together. Because if you've got to debate something, you must know the side that you've got to debate. And I can just say that 
people like Don Murphy inspired me on the council side of things. Uh, I've got other friends who's still in business who also inspired me. Stay focused. Be fair with the customers. Be fair. Dedication. Uh, I often, uh, I would be coming home on a night and I, I would have been come home on a night and I would be resting after maybe a physically drained day. Somebody would ring me up. Oh, Mike, do you have one of these pieces of equipment? Oh, yes, we do. Always, you know, you can't be snappy with customs. Uh, you know, just say, yes, we do. We have one of these pieces of equipment. Come down tomorrow and I'll show you how it works. And, and, and give people as much help as you can. That is all you can do. And I have done that throughout my working life. Always been fair with people and give them my very best advice. Regards business, points of sale on the counter. And I guess in the last year or two that I was in business, the problems was very, very limited. Maybe one a month, because maybe someone had stepped over the line and tried to shortcut the system. Mm. But I thoroughly enjoyed the business side of things. But I got to the situation where I could get involved in other council's activities and this sort of thing. Whatever I do in, in my life, I give the best I can. If I don't, I've got to walk away from it. If I can't give it my best, I've got to walk away from it. I was not driven by money. I was driven by enthusiasm to think that I can do better by managing this and managing whatever came along. So, as I say... But when you say you were driven by enthusiasm, what do you mean? Because most people are driven, if they start business, they're driven by financial gain. Or, or they want to, well, well, they want to I, do I like something. the new developments that I was getting, in, uh, uh, getting involved in. You know, who thought, I mean, okay, I came from, from a, a family, I guess yeah, I could say from very small beginnings, you know, because when I was a kid, when I was five, when I used to go out, uh, to the council to collect the money that the town council was, when they got a new mayor, they would throw the money out. And uh, basically, I come from a small beginning where when I was being brought up, there was four people in a double bed, me and my three brothers. And we had a great coat as a blanket. Uh, you had a coat as a blanket. Yeah, my dad's great army great coat as a blanket, and we used to get in a tin bath once a week. And usually, being the youngest boy, I was the last one to go in. <laughs> and, and and basically, I come from very small beginnings. So anything that I've achieved, it's not a financial thing. It's a security thing because. There's a lot of opportunities out there. Sometimes things are worth taking, sometimes they aren't. We've never lived the high life, although we had maybe lots of financial benefits. We've never spent our limit. I've always put something aside for a rainy day. Along the way, 
I wasn't looking at for financial. I was looking for financial gain, but not in the sense of I must make a profit on this. Because got to remember in business, you don't make a profit on everything. Sometimes it's a learning curve, and you got, you lose something, but by God, you learn about it. You know why you've lost that money. Now, in two thousand eight, we had a bit of a we had a bit of a recession for a couple of years. Well, I think Britain's been in recession for quite some time. In 2008, it was a poor, very bad situation. I had to lay a couple of people off because we wasn't getting the money. If the money didn't come in through the front door, I can't hand it out through the back door. So we had a situation where we had to reduce the amount of staff we had, but we're still there providing the service. So we've been through the good times and the bad times. My final thing I would say is look after the bad times. And the good times look after themselves. I would say that if you want to start a business, very early beginnings, stay focused. Don't think it's a nine-to-five job because it isn't. Well, Dad, thank you very much for these insights, and we wish you best of luck with your future projects. Okay, you're welcome. And thank you for taking the time out to make this recording. And I hope it's of benefit, benefit to anyone who listens. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Look out for more in the Well Connected series in the coming weeks. Until next time, this is Jason Bryan, and you've been listening to Well Connected from Rocker Radio.